If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Jonah chapter 4. Jonah chapter 4. We'll finish our time in Jonah, and we'll put the big story on pause after this week, and we'll move into Advent. Today's technically the first Sunday of Advent, but we're going to delay it just one week, and we'll kick off a Christmas series next Sunday. So Jonah chapter 4, we'll read the whole chapter together. It says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat at the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he shall see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? He said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. Let's pray to the Lord together this morning. Heavenly Father, we live in a world of outrage, a world that's angry the way Jonah was angry, a world that teaches us that with our anger, with our misery, with our dismay to turn even more and more inward that we might ultimately find some hope, some answer, some way. Yet God, we see in Jonah how futile that effort really is. So, Father, this morning I pray, I pray that you would turn your people away from themselves. Stop allowing us to be so inwardly focused that, Lord, we might see the Lord high and lifted up and find joy and pleasure and delight in him. I pray, Father, that this morning you would begin to help us to understand why it is that we're so angry and to empty us of it. Why it is we're so miserable and to resolve it for us. I pray, Father, that you would take our bad questions and resolve them with better questions. We ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So, as I mentioned opening up the service, Luke chapter 15 is probably Jesus' most famous parable. The parable of the prodigal son is how we most often know it. And how can you not love the parable of the prodigal son? I mean... All of us seem to be able to identify with it, right? You have this young man, he's grown up in his father's house, and he goes and he trades his family for a frat house. And he and goes and he lives as wildly as he can live, and he enjoys all the things that his father's wealth can afford him until finally he has squandered all of it. And there, standing in the pigsty, he looks over and he longs for the slop the pigs are eating, and he remembers it occurs to him for the first time in his whole life. 
He'd always loved his dad for what his dad could give him. He'd always loved his dad for his money. He'd, always, he'd only cared about what lifestyle his dad could afford him. But for the first time in his life, he wasn't worried about what his dad could buy him. He wasn't worried about what his dad could do for him. He just wanted to be with his dad. He began to appreciate how good of a man his father was. So he sets on this journey to go back, and on his way back, he rehearses a speech in his mind that I just want to be a servant in your household, that it is better to be a servant in your house than to live without you in the world on my own. But while he was still a long way off, still a long way off, that picture, and if you could understand the ancient Near East and the Middle Eastern culture in which the patriarch of the family never humiliates himself, never does anything to lower himself beneath others, the father sees him a long way off, and the son that has brought utter shame upon his family, he picks up his robe and runs, leaving behind his dignity. He embraces that runaway boy. That boy that didn't deserve goodness, that boy that didn't deserve kindness, he pulls him close and he loves him. And we can see ourselves there, can't we? We can see ourselves there. But the parable of the prodigal son is actually not a good name for the parable. It is actually the parable of two sons. That Jesus actually in his opening sentence in Luke chapter 15 says there was a man with two sons. And actually, he's talking to the Pharisees, and the first son, the runaway boy, is not even the main point of the parable. The main point is the second son. That there's an older brother that's there. And the older brother has stayed responsible. And the older brother has done everything that his dad would have him to do. And the older brother has stayed in his dad's house. And the older brother has brought honor and not shame to his dad. So when his dad goes and he throws his arms away around this prodigal boy, the older son is standing in the side, seething in anger. My dad never threw me a party. I've worked with him all of my life. I've brought honor to his house. I've done everything that he's asked. He's never been so excited to see me. There, standing in the side in the midst of his father's joy, in the midst of a party being thrown around him is a man who is miserable and angry. You see, the main point of the parable is that most of us believe we're the first son when we're actually the second. That most of us believe we're the, the boy that has his arms around at the runaway that's come home, when in reality, we're the one that is judging and resenting the goodness and the grace of God that is offered to the other people that's around us. And so I think what we see in Jonah is the big brother. The big brother, he resents that God has relented of his judgment against Nineveh. He wants Nineveh to be destroyed. And though he has received great grace in the, in the belly of that fish, he resents the fact now that God would offer the same grace to a city that he hates and is so prejudiced against as Nineveh. And I think that we can see ourselves there. So there are three questions that big brothers are asking. Three questions that big brothers need to ask if we want to get to the bottom. Those of us who can identify with that second son. The first is, why am I angry? <coughs> Forgive me. Why am I so angry? This is probably the question, I, I alluded to this last night in, on Facebook. This is probably the question that I am asked more than any other question right now. 
that there seems to be this low-grade frustration that's always in the background, that's always uh, that's there, and we just tend to erupt always at the wrong time, always on the wrong people, always for the wrong things. It's little bitty things, right? It's, it's driving down and somebody cuts you off and then your wife says something and you just go ballistic on her or it's, or it's uh, your kids come in and you just want to watch your show. You just want to sit on that spot on the couch and he comes in and you just erupt on them, right? We start to recognize I'm angry, but we don't really seem to know why it is that we're so angry. Why it is that we erupt the way that we do. Why it is that there's so much internal frustration in us. We ought to be able to identify with the big brother then, right? Jesus says that he was angry and refused to go in to the party. He, he was just angry. He said, I'll just stay outside and be mad for a while. I'm going to throw a temper tantrum so that my dad knows I'm not happy. Verse 1 says the same thing about Jonah, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. He was angry. He was mad. The same is true for us, isn't it? You know, anger reveals values. You may say what you value. You may talk about what your priorities are. You may talk about those things that are important to you. But what is happening beneath the surface, that which leads to frustration, that which causes anger, that which leads to eruptions, that, that reveals what you actually value. That reveals the state of your real priorities, what's happening beneath the surface. And so probably what we can see is the... the what, the reason that the big brother was so angry and the reason that Jonah is angry are the same reasons. And the reason they are angry are probably, probably at least part of the reason that we find so much anger in us. So what are they? First of all, that God doesn't follow our rules. That God doesn't follow our rules. In other words, this is about control. We, we want to be in control, don't we? We want to control the outcomes of our lives. We want to control the circumstances of our lives. We want to control our financial freedom. We want to control all of these things. And when we begin to lose control, what happens? We get angry. We get angry. Look at the prayer. So this is the second time that we've seen Jonah pray in the book. First, we saw him pray from the belly of the fish in Jonah chapter, that beautiful psalm, right, where it's so eloquently written and he's appealing to the goodness of God and appealing to the character of God that he might experience the mercy of God. But then in, in verse 2, we see that he's praying again. It says, and he prayed to the Lord and he said, Oh Lord, is not this what I said uh, when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Do you hear what he's saying? So, so here's Jonah, and he is making a theologically accurate statement. He is speaking almost verbatim what Moses says in Exodus chapter 34. This is a theologically precise, theologically astute statement about the goodness of God. And Jonah is here saying it, but he's saying it in a tirade against God. That He's the original Theobro. Y'all know what I'm talking about? People that they're armed with a lot of good theology, but they just seem to be mad about it all the time. Y'all know what I'm talking about. That theological precision in the hands of a prejudicial or abusive person becomes a club with which you beat people down with. 
with which you raise your fist at God. God, this is not who I thought you were. This is not my system. This is not what I believed. That in other words, what we see here is that Jonah believed that God had transgressed the rules that he had set for his grace. That Jonah had established a well-established framework for how God ought to offer grace and who God ought to offer grace to and why he ought to offer that grace to them. That he had framed it up just right so that he should receive grace, older brother, and that little brother who ran away, Nineveh, ought to not have grace at all. And so he's mad. He's mad because God is in control and not him. And the big brother is mad. He's angry because his father is in charge of the estate, not him. And the reason that we blow up on our wives, the reason that we take it out on our children, the reason that we're so harsh with our husbands, the reason we speak under our breath about our supervisor or about our coworker. Is because we believe they are transgressing the rules and the laws that we have established. The framework that we have. We are losing control. We want to control what God does. How God relates. The circumstances in our life. The outcomes of our lives. And we have no control. And so what we've learned. What we've learned. Is that if I will throw a temper tantrum big enough. If I will have a burst of anger ferocious enough. That everybody will cower down to me. That it will bring me control. That my wife will walk on eggshells around me. That my husband will be slow to point out an error the next time. That my kids will let me have the peace and quiet that I wanted to begin with. That I'll have my control. That anger is an attempt to manipulate control. But you see... What we're really angry about is that God hasn't allowed us to live as freely as we want to live. And the problem with our view is that God cannot be manipulated by the temper tantrums of his children. That he is a father that will not cede control to satisfy an unruly child. And so we just stay angry. We just stay angry because we know we're not ultimately in control. And everybody else is walking on eggshells around us. And our children, when we grow up, don't want to come home to us. Because we have communicated to them that if they're around us, we're in control. And anything less is disaster. Why are we angry? God doesn't follow our rules. Why else are we angry? Life doesn't go our way. This is, in other words, the first one is about control. The second one is about unmet desires. You'll notice here... That what happens is, is that he sits, he pulls up a lawn chair, right? And God had told him there's going to be 40 days, you know, they're going to have 40 days through, or I'm going to bring judgment. And so what he ultimately decides is, you know what, I'm going to wait this out. And so kind of like my family does, like we have the, that traditional Alabama uh, 4th of July, we drive up to Cheehaw, get on the lookout and sit on the tailgate, you know? And uh, like it's just... That's the way God intended it on 4th of July, I'm, I'm pretty sure. And so we, th- this is the picture for Jonah. He goes and he throws up a tent and he says, I'm just going to hang out here in a lawn chair with a Coca-Cola and I'm going to watch, hopefully, sulfur fire fall down upon Nineveh and destroy him. And while he's there, while he's there, this beautiful little shade tree, this little plant grows and it brings him happiness and he's so joyful. Here is this plant bringing me shade. Clearly, in his mind, this is a one-to-one. I have received in the prosperity of the shade the favor of God. 
So, man, he's there, and it's a good afternoon to drink the Coca-Cola and to watch, uh, hoping and in anticipation that Nineveh is going to fall. But within 24 hours, God sends a worm, and the worm comes, and it causes the, the, the tree that had brought him such delight, such joy, the tree that in his mind was the proof and the evidence of the favor of God in his life to wither and die. And God, when he answers him in verse 9, he says, this made you angry, didn't it? Why are you so angry? That Jonah's response was, is how dare you? How dare you not give me what I want? How dare you not let me experience what I enjoy? How dare you, Lord? In other words, the reason that he's angry is that his life went differently than the way that he had planned it. His life was going differently than the way that he wanted it to go. You know what James says? James says in chapter 4, he says, do you want to know why you quarrel? In other words, do you want to know why you're so mad? Do you want to know why you're picking fights with your spouse? Do you want to know why you're picking fights uh, at work? Do you want to know why nobody wants to be around you and you're a miserable person? He says, do you want to know why you quarrel? Because you want and you do not have. In other words, there are desires in your life that are going unmet. Why is Jonah angry? Jonah's angry because he wants Nineveh to be destroyed. He wants to enjoy the favor of God without Nineveh knowing the favor of God. And he does not have it, and it makes him angry. Why is it that the big brother? The big brother is, is angry because he wants to receive the party. He wants to receive the fattened calf. He wants to be the only single apple of his father's eye. And here is his father throwing a party and his arms around his rebellious little brother. He wants it. He does not have it. He's angry. And that's why you yell so much. And that's why your blood pressure is probably through the roof. And that's why you go and you clock in bitter and you check out even more bitter than when you started. That's why you go to school and you're bitter and angry with all the people that are around you. You're angry with your parents for making you go. You're angry with your coaches for making you do. Because you are not having what you desire. Well, we better buckle up here. Because what made him happy, God was pleased to remove from him so that he could get to the essence of what was actually going on. That in other words, what we want is superficial and shallow satisfaction. We're settling far too cheap. And God is pleased to let superficial happiness wither. So I want to ask you this morning, the same exact question that God asked to Jonah. The way the New American Standard Version uh, asked it, I think, is best. Do you have a good reason to be angry? Do you have a good reason to be angry? Or are you just angry because you're not God and not in control? Or are you just angry because life isn't going your way and you're not getting all the corrupt desires and selfish desires that you want and that you aren't being able to control all the outcomes? Do you have a good reason to be angry? The second question that we see is really an extension and a clarification of the first. It's really two sides of, of the same coin. And in fact, it's may seem quite similar, but it's a broader question, and I think it's an important one to ask. Not just why am I angry, but big brothers need to ask, why am I unhappy? Why am I unhappy? That seems maybe like a, a shallow and superficial question at first, right? We're not supposed to be talking about happiness. We're supposed to be talking about holiness. Oh my goodness gracious, what are we talking about? 
That's the deepest question we're trying to answer, isn't it? Everything you do in your life is because you want to be happy. Some people are legalists because they want to be happy. Some people are licentious because they want to be happy. Some people go to brothels because they want to go be happy. Some people go to church because they want to be happy. Some people do drugs because they want to be happy. Some people lose weight because they want to be happy. Some people eat everything inside because they want to be happy. Everything we do is because we want to be happy. It's the deepest and most profound question we can ask. But we're not happy. The, brother, the big brother certainly wasn't happy. Imagine the scene. This is so much the picture of us, y'all. There is a party happening inside, a reception. The fattened calf has been killed. The people are dancing and singing all the way through the night, and there's Big Brother seething outside, mad that it's not his party. He's not happy. Jonah is the same way. Jonah pulls up a lawn chair. His little, his little uh, plant goes away, and he's miserable that God is being so good to Nineveh. He, matter of fact, he says, I'm so unhappy, I just assume you kill me. I, I would rather just die than to live in the kind of world that's different than the one that I imagine. Can you identify with him there? Can you see that? Why is it that we're so happy? Why is it that the big brother was so happy? Why is it that Jonah was so happy? Why is it that we are so happy? It's because we see ourselves first. Look at what he says here. Notice how many times in Jonah's prayer, he refers to himself in the first person. He says, and he prayed to the Lord and, uh, and said, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish for. I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting for, from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. It is better for me to die than to live. In the English, in the ESV, it, it occurs eight times in the first person. In the Hebrew, it's even more emphatic, occurring nine times. The big brother does the exact same thing. I tried to point it out while I was reading it earlier. He goes and he says to his father, when he finally confronts him, he says, have I not always served you? Have I not always obeyed you? Where is my fattened calf? Where is my party? In other words, what we see about miserable people is that they understand themselves to be at the center of the universe. That the world revolves around you. And the more the world revolves around them, the more miserable, the angrier they become. And so the, the point here, the point here is that Jonah, you're a miserable person because you're the only person you care about. It's, it's like the, the good things that happen in other people's lives, the good things that are happening in Nineveh, the good things that are happening in the little brother's life, the good things that are happening in other people's marriages, the good things that are happening for other people's children, the good things that are happening for your other co-workers, those things actually seem to contribute to a greater misery in you. Oh, that's certainly a recipe for unhappiness, isn't it? That's certainly a pathway from unhappiness. As a matter of fact, look at verse 6. I think this is really interesting. Verse 6, we have the only instance in the whole book of Jonah in which Jonah is actually said to be happy. It says, now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Okay, think about this. Think about this. God wanted to use Jonah. Didn't make Jonah happy. God saves Jonah, swallows him by a fish, spits him out on the deck so that he has a story. 
not happy. Jonah, Jonah keeps going, and, and it seems as though no matter what he does, he goes, God uses him. He brings an entire nation to repentance. Not happy. Miserable. A plant springs up. Jonah's happy. Two things in the book of Jonah that, jo- that Jonah hates. The first thing that Jonah hates is Nineveh. We, that, that's well established. Are we there? Y'all with me on that one, right? Jonah hates Nineveh. The second thing that he hates is discomfort. He hates to be uncomfortable, and he hates the people that he hates. In other words, Jonah hates any world that's different than the one that he himself has designed. Jonah hates any world that is different than the one that he has imagined for himself. And the point of all of this is is that this is a happiness that is destroyed by worms. God sends a worm, and the tree is gone overnight. The only thing that made him happy. How many of us, how many of us, the only times we're happy is when things happen exactly the way that we want them to happen? Because if that is the sole time of our happiness, we are going to be miserable people because we have so little control over anything that happens in our lives. It's a happiness that's circumstantial. It's a happiness that can't last. It's a happiness that's short-lived and superficial. What if Jonah, what if Jonah could have been happy for Nineveh's repentance, though? What if the big brother could have been happy for the fact that his father was so happy? What if he could have joined in the happiness of his little brother? What if Jonah could have joined in in the happiness when all of heaven, the Bible says that heaven rejoices when a sinner repents. And here's an entire nation of people. And you can just imagine the choirs of heaven all standing around the throne of God celebrating the repentance of Nineveh. What if Jonah could have joined in? See, the only way we'll have Teflon joy the kind of joy that endures, the kind of joy that is tougher than our circumstances, the kind of joy that is transcendent above all the things that we desire and all the things, is if we will look out from ourselves toward the glory of God. That's the point. If we'll stop looking at how it affects us and look at the goodness of God and other things, that if what makes God happy makes us happy, then we can have a happiness that is rock solid. You see it? You see it? See, Why am I so unhappy? We see ourselves first and we believe ourselves to be entitled. That's what unhappy people do. Inevitably, what unhappy people do is they take what they believe they deserve and they compare it to what other people receive and get. And so what they think is, what they the question they begin to ask themselves is, why do they get what I deserve? Why do they get the marriage that I deserve? Why do they get the husband, the wife that I deserve? Why do they have the children that I deserve? Why do they have the promotion that I deserve? Why do they have the health that I deserve? In other words, what what they believe is people, the big brother because of his performance, Jonah because of his heritage, they believe that they deserve what other people don't have. That they believe they deserve a special relationship with God that no one else is privy to. Special kindness from God that nobody else is allowed to receive. And the goodness of God given to others brings misery to them. In other words, do you know what a close companion to 
Entitlement is victimhood. Victimhood. Victimhood is the close companion of entitlement. This is clear in Jonah, right? It says, it dis- verse 1, it displeased Jonah exceedingly. It can be translated originally as this was a great evil to Jonah, occurred upon Jonah, a great evil. That's repeated twice. In other words, from the perspective of Jonah, he thought, how dare you victimize me this way? How dare you not give me what I deserve? How dare you make me go to a place I don't want to go? How dare you save a people that I want to see destroyed? How dare you not let me know your joy and your favor independently of Nineveh? How dare you let this happen in my life? How dare you take away the plant that was bringing you? How dare you? The surest way to a miserable life is to see yourself always as the victim. The surest way to a miserable life is to always see yourself as a victim. Do you know who's happy in the story of Jonah? We've already established nothing makes Jonah happy. Not being used by God, not being sent by God, not being rescued by God. Nothing is making Jonah happy. Do you know who's happy? There's five different assignments given in the book of Jonah. Okay? We see... First of all, it says that God assigned, appointed a fish to go to Jonah. You remember that? Appointed. It uses that word. We see three more right here. God appointed a plant and made it come up over him. And then God appointed a worm that attacked the plant. And then God appointed a scorching east wind. You know who's happy in the story? The fish is happy. The fish is happy to go where God would have it to go and to swallow the prophet and to spit him out. The fish is happy to do it. The plant, the plant is happy. The plant is happy to grow. The worm is happy. Man, it's Thanksgiving for the worm. It goes and devours the plant. This is a great day to be a worm. The wind is happy to go exactly where God would have it to go. But there was a fifth appointment given in the book of Jonah, and it was that Jonah would go to Nineveh, and Jonah resisted the sovereignty of God. This word appointed is a point, it's pointing toward the sovereign superintending of grace of, the, of God over all of his creation, that all of creation is responsive to his sovereign call. All of creation goes exactly where it tells it to go, and all of creation is delighted and pleased and happy to do and accomplish exactly what God has set before him to accomplish except for miserable people who want to control, who resist the sovereignty of God rather than surrender and submit to it. I wonder if that's why you're unhappy. You know, hard times are going to come. Hard circumstances are going to come. Difficult days are going to come. Things that you don't want to happen to you are going to happen to you. This is a reality of living in a compl- with a complex existence in a broken world. This is going to take place in your life. But if you can submit and surrender yourself to a sovereign God that says all things work together for the good of those who love me, who are called according to my purpose. If you can submit and surrender to him, if you can submit and surrender and say that even though I've lost my job, even though my marriage is not what I would have for it to be, even though my kids are rebelling, even though someone else is getting the, the promotion that I long wanted, even though I can trust, submit, and surrender to the sovereignty of God to know that his purposes for me are good, that his will for me is not gone, and that I can be exactly who he's called me to be and accomplish exactly what he's set for me to accomplish. You know what? Now, now, 
now you can find peace. Now you can find hope. Now you can live a life that isn't miserable and unhappy because it isn't dependent upon you. And it isn't revolving around you. And it isn't dependent upon you. It's the Lord, and the Lord is good, and the Lord is trustworthy, and the Lord is proven, and the Lord is willing. In fact, these first two questions, why is it that I'm angry and why is it that I'm unhappy, they're answered in a better question. That is, why am I loved? Why am I loved? So he keeps going back and forth, and he keeps asking two different times, do you have a good reason to be angry, Jonah? Do you have a good reason to be angry? Jonah, it's the same question I'm asking you this morning. Do you have a good reason to be angry? Do you have a good reason to be unhappy? Do you have a good reason to be miserable? This is the question. And Jonah answers the way that we often answer. You're darn right I have a good reason to be angry. Have you seen my life? I had a shade tree. The shade is gone. I hated these people. You're saving these people. Like, my life is not going any way that I wanted to go. The people that I hate, the discomfort that I hate, are both prevalent realities in my life. The big brother is the same way. The big brother is the same way. He's like, yeah, I have a reason to be angry. That's supposed to be my fattened calf. That's supposed to be my party. That's supposed to be my celebration, my life. And yet here I am, standing on the outside, watching you celebrate the rebel. Yeah, I have a reason to be unhappy. I have a reason to be miserable. In other words, what the big brother is saying to his father is how could you love him the way that you're supposed to love me? And what Jonah is saying when he's comparing the favor of God with a withering plant and the favor of God and relenting judgment against Nineveh is how could you love them the way that you're supposed to love me? That's the question that we ask, isn't it? In fact, that gets to the main point of the book. That Jonah had missed the main revelation that he himself had confessed from the bottom of the well. That that what Jonah wants to do and what we want to do is we want to be able to define the boundaries of grace so that we walk in grace. We are gifted by grace. We live in grace. And those that we don't think deserve it, those that we don't think are worthy of us, those that we believe ought not get the promotion, ought not have the marriage, ought not have the kids, that they are outside the boundaries of God's good grace. But the point of the parable and the point of the book of Jonah is that salvation belongs to the Lord. That God, God is able and willing to grant grace to whomever he wills to grant grace. To be kind to whomever he wishes to be kind. To show his goodness to whomever he desires to show his goodness. That fundamentally, what they're asking is the wrong question. One more time, I want us to think about the prayer that Jonah prays. In the tirade that he makes in verse 2, angry with God, he says, I knew what you would do. I knew who you were. I knew how you would respond. Because you are a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, very different from Jonah, abounding and steadfast. This is loyal love, devoted love, and relenting from disaster. What kind of God did Jonah need, y'all? That one. Jonah needed that mercy for himself. 
Jonah needed that grace for himself. Jonah needed God to be slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love for himself. Jonah needed to be rescued himself. This was Jonah's hope. That's the wrong question. How could you love them? The question ought to be, how could you love me? How could you love me? You want to answer your anger? How could you love me? Gratitude, humility. You want to answer your misery? Take yourself out of the center and let yourself behold the greatness of God that owed you infinite wrath and ask him, how could you love me? There is not a counselor worth his or her salt in this world that would advise God to stay in the relationship with me. I have been too unfaithful too many times over too many years. But God loves me. God loves me. That's why I still have a life. That's why I still have hope. That's why I can have joy regardless of what is happening around me. That is why I have no right to anger and bitterness toward anything. God loves me still. He has been abounding in love, steadfast in mercy. He loves me. See what the big brother and Jonah teach us? is that grace is always a scandal. That's why they're angry. It's irrational. It's illogical. It makes no sense. Nineveh isn't getting what they deserve. And the little brother isn't getting what he deserved. But my goodness, Jonah isn't getting what he deserved. And big brother isn't getting what he deserved. And I'm not getting what I deserve. Grace has prevailed on every front. See, I had accumulated for me a debt that I could not pay against a king over whom I could not assail. But Colossians chapter 2 said that he took my debt with all of its legal demands and he nailed it to the cross and he paid it on my behalf because grace was scandalous and determined to prevail on my account. Y'all, how could... How could God love us? That's, that's worthy of a thousand songs sang to him. That's worthy of as much thought as we can give for the rest of our lives, as much stillness as we can have. How could God love me? You see, I'm not shocked that there is a place in the kingdom of God for the little brother. And I'm not shocked that there is a place in the kingdom of God for Nineveh. And I'm not shocked that there is a place in the kingdom of God for every member of the LGBTQ community that God can save. And I'm not shocked that there is a member of, there is a place in the kingdom of God for every pro-choice person that repents of their sins and places their faith. I'm shocked there is a place for me. I'm shocked there's a place for you. Let's pray to the Lord together. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, and what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And we would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.